Let's read, shall we, from Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read uh, from verse 13. And really what I want to do this morning is, rather than do an in-depth exposition of this passage, I really just want to bring to you the argument that Paul is making in three points and summarise it and provide some application as we go along the way. So I'm going to read from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. He says there, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Father, as we open your word, we are so conscious of our need for your spirit to work in us in this time. Lord, may it be that you quiet our hearts, that we would listen to what your word says, that you would make it clear to us who our master is, and that you would inspire in us a desire to bring glory and honour to you. Lord, use this time, we pray, for your name's sake, for your glory in this church. In Jesus' name, Amen. (coughs) Marie-Augustine Pellier of Brittany in France um, was arrested in the spring of 1786. Now, you may know a little of the history of France. 1789 was the... Uh, 1790 rather was a French Revolution. So he was arrested four years before that on a blank warrant signed by King Louis XVI. And he was charged with having whistled at Marie Antoinette as she was going in to a theatre to see a production as she was just being seated. He was 22 years old and he was labelled a prisoner of the state. And he was kept in solitary confinement until 1790. And then he was secretly transferred to the dungeon at Lourdes. 
when the French Revolution did begin and the royal couple were, were put to death, his sentence was not reviewed and he stayed in a cell alone for 24 more years until his case was reopened. Napoleon, of course, was uh, then overthrown and uh, he was, he was you know, reigning as an emperor over France for about 14, 15 years. And in 1814, when he was overthrown and thrown into prison, there was a newly installed royal procurator. And he went through the prison records and found this man's record there. And that he was still incarcerated in solitary confinement, now 28 years. So the man, he ordered immediately that this man be released. However, between the time that the order for his release happened and the actual carrying out of it, Napoleon managed to escape from his imprisonment in Alba. And he returned to France, throwing France into uproar again. In the midst of all of this, the prisoner was again forgotten. His day of freedom did not come until 1836, 50 years after he was imprisoned. And when Marie Antoinette, the person who he allegedly had whistled at, had been in her grave for 43 years, he was granted kindly at 72 years old, although he was still a criminal, the state called it an act of kindness or an act of grace, and they gave him back his land and freed him. As terrible as it is for this man to be imprisoned for 50 years in solitary confinement, his imprisonment, his being captured and kept away is insignificant to the imprisonment that you and I have been rescued from. Yet, unlike Louis XVI, who was dead 43 years when he was released, our former master continues to try and enslave us. So this evening, this morning rather, what we're going to look at in this passage before us is the call that we have to freedom. So we were called to freedom. And Paul, in saying that in verse 13, goes back to chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. And then we go back again to the examples of Hagar and Sarah. And Hagar, of course, was uh, was a son of was the slave woman, and Sarah was free, and her son was the son of promise, and Hagar's son was the son of slavery. But we, as the children of the promise, have been set free, set free from not only the law, but from the enslaving effects the flesh, in response to the law, tries to bring us and successfully brings us under. So this morning what we're going to look at is the nature of our freedom. We're going to go through and examine three different constraints or three qualifications of our call to freedom. And what we're going to see is that the freedom we've been called to is not a a libertarian freedom where we can do whatever we want. It is a constrained freedom. It is a freedom with limits and boundaries set by our Lord and explained in this text this morning. In this passage, Paul's going to indicate and show us that there are three qualifications in our call to freedom. The first is that the flesh continues and our desires are corrupted. 
Now, when God made us back in the Garden of Eden, he made us in his image. Part of what that means is that we, by God's intention, have desires. God is a God who desires. And being made in his image, we are people who have desires. And in fact, you will probably know from your own heart that desires are one of the most powerful motivations that God has given to us. In fact, most of the time, and and this varies from person to person, but for a lot of us, we do what we want. We do what we want. We're driven by those desires. Now, when sin came, of course, we were corrupted. God says in, in, in Genesis chapter 6 that the earth was corrupt in the sight of the Lord and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was all corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so when sin came, the desires, the good and godly and God-given desires that the Lord put in us by intention at our creation were corrupted and therefore sinful. And this was the state that we were in when we were saved. Prior to our salvation and up to the very point of our salvation, that was the state we were in. All of our nature, all of our desires were subject to this corruption. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, Among the Gentiles, among them, we all too formerly lived in the what lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And salvation comes when we recognize that our desires are completely corrupt, that they are, that we are bankrupt, that we have nothing in us that is going to motivate us to God. And when we recognize we are dead in our sins and we repent of those sins and call on God for salvation. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 24, you'll notice down the bottom of the passage there, so I'm not going to follow this in a linear linear manner, I'm going to sort of work around here, but one of the things we're going to see just as we look at the flesh, in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus though, at a point of salvation, have crucified the flesh. Now the word crucified there, and it's crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The word crucified there is an active verb. And what that means is that you and I, those who are crucified, who who have crucified the flesh, those who have belonged to Christ Jesus, they have actively crucified the flesh. They have made a decision. So part of repentance is this decision to crucify, to put to death the flesh. So when we are saved, we repent and our sin is joined to Christ and crucified with him in his death, and that takes care of the penalty of our sin, and we ourselves, with the work and effort of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in a minute, then crucify, and work to crucify and put to death the desires of the flesh that linger in us. And that's important to note. I want you to take that, just remember that. The, 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 the desires of the flesh, the flesh that we had before we are saved, you know, it says in Second uh, uh, Corinthians 5.17 that we are a new creation, right? When we look at the new creation and compare it to the old, 
the old man. What we're going to see is that the flesh in the old nature, in the old, in the old us, and the flesh in the new us is exactly the same. The reason we are a new creation in Christ is because we have Christ's spirit who has joined himself to us. It's not that the old us has gone entirely. It's that there is something new has come. And so what we see is that we here now, even though you and I, if we are saved, if we belong to the Lord, we belong, we are saved and our, the justification has been completed in Christ, yet our sin nature continues because we remain in the same body that we were born in. The same corrupted flesh continues until the day of redemption, until that time when our body is transformed. So even though our sin has been put away before God, it remains in our body until our body is transformed. Our souls are quickened and made alive, but our flesh continues until our body is changed from perishable to imperishable. In fact, that flesh has the same vigour has the same potential as what it did before we were saved. It continues. That constrains our freedom. Paul says in in verse 13, You are called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And the idea of an opportunity here is a convenient set of circumstances. And so here's the point. When we use our freedom to obey the desires of the flesh, we are not slaves of sin anymore because we've been set free. It's worse than that. When having been set free, we go back to the desires of the flesh, we become volunteers of sin. Let that sink in. We've been set free. And if we go back to the desires of the flesh, we are volunteering ourselves for sin. Paul says, if we are free, can't we just do what, our, what we want? And he says, no. Should we who are set free from sin continue in it? Is that why we were set free? Imagine, for instance, Bartimaeus. He is blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road. Being a blind man, it's kind of hard to get a job. I mean, it's not like nowadays where there's Braille and things like that. Back in Jesus' day, there was no braille. If you couldn't see, you couldn't work. So here's Bartimaeus. He has no choice but to beg for the things he needs to live. And then one day, Christ comes along and he heals this man. And what he's essentially doing is he's setting him free from that old constraint, from that old lifestyle, so that he can now go and work. But imagine if having been healed by Jesus, Bartimaeus decided that it was actually easier to beg. And so he went and sat on the side of the road again and pretended to be blind and started begging again. He's, he's now making a choice to beg. He could do anything else. He's no longer constrained by his blindness. He's free to work and yet He chooses to live the same lifestyle. That's a little bit like what's happening with us. 
when we, having been set free from sin, choose to go back to sin. Our flesh remains and this is what it wants to do with us. It wants to draw us back. It wants to draw us in. It wants to keep us enslaved. So we are not to volunteer to give ourselves to sin. We are not to submit ourselves willingly to its murderous intent. We are not to enable sin or to let sin reign over us. We are not to yield to the influence of the flesh. So the question then becomes, what is the influence it has over us? How does it try to enslave us? And it says in verse 17, it gives us the answer. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. See, the flesh has its desires and these desires constantly tempt us. James chapter 1 explains this when James says every person is tempted when he is Lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In James chapter 4, he says, you know, um, you know, the, you, the, uh, where, from where do battles and, and conflicts come from? Is it not from the pleasures of you, the ones waging war and your members? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. And so he's saying that all these conflicts and quarrels and things that we get embroiled in can be traced back to our desires. See, our desires cause us to act. They motivate us. So that when we act sinfully, we can trace those actions back to the sinful flesh, to the corrupt desires that still linger in this unredeemed body. So the first of our qualifications of our call to freedom is that the the sinful nature, the flesh, continues and our desires still are corrupted. But that's not the end of the story. Praise the Lord. The second of our qualifications is that the Spirit constrains us. Our desires now are conflicted. So while our flesh seeks to keep us enslaved, once we are saved, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, freeing us from the constraints of the flesh. Paul exhorts us then in verse 16, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here we have a clear instruction that we are to actively walk in the Spirit. But look at verse 18, where he says, but if you are led by the Spirit. Now, it's, it's not super obvious in the English necessarily, but what we have here is in verse 16, we have an active verb, and in verse 18, we have a passive verb. We are called to actively walk with the Spirit, which means we're responsible for this walk, which means we can choose that particular course of action. But yet, in verse 18, we have a passive verb, which means that it's not us working, but it's the Lord working in us. We are to be led. We're not to merely lead ourselves. So we see that there are two parties involved, if you like. 
fact, Paul puts this in Philippians chapter 2 really clearly. In Philippians 2, in verse 13, he says, So that, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, here's the wording, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work. You and I have the responsibility to act a certain way. But yet, he says there to do it with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Well, the answer follows, because God is the one working in you. No, we, we can't, we can't on our own necessarily, you know, we, we can't make God work in somebody else, right? And, and even in ourselves, the, the most ability we have really is that we can stop God from working in us. Hence the need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so what we see here in this passage is that on the one hand, we are to work, and on the other hand, God is working in us. On the one hand, we are to walk, and on the other hand, we are to be led. On the one hand, we are to act, and on the other hand, God acts on us. And so this is this glorious truth of the gospel, is that God does not leave us to our own devices. He doesn't save us and say, thanks for, the, thanks for all the fish, I'm off. Right? God continues to will and to work in us for his good pleasure. And there is a result of this walk. Walk by the Spirit, and he says there in verse 16, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here he is, he's presenting to us that, that the way to not walk in the, in the flesh, to not follow the path of the flesh, is to walk with the Spirit. And the wording he uses there for the idea of you will not gratify, or you, in the New American Standard it says carry out the desires of the flesh, the word used there is normally translated as to complete. In other words, he's really acknowledging what we've already seen, that the flesh is already there. The question is not whether the desires of the sinful desires are latent there or not. The question is whether we will complete them, whether we will act on them. That's the question. This is the same as what we learned in James 1 and James 4. Even though the flesh has been crucified in Christ, the sin has been dealt with, the flesh itself, itself is still active and vigorous until the day of our death and redemption. Those desires are still there and they are still strong. So, there's a, so he goes on to explain that when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, he also has desires. And he says there, for the flesh desires against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So we can see what's going on. The flesh remains and the desires of the flesh are still there, but yet the Spirit comes and lives in us and now God's own desires are active in our souls. So we can see a number of things from this. And this, this is a game changer. The fact that the Spirit of God lives in us and that His desires are there in us is a game changer. This is the difference for Bartimaeus. So Bartimaeus, before Jesus healed him, could only beg. But with sight restored, now he has choices. So it is for you and I. The flesh remains, but now that the Spirit of God is in us, we have choices. 
Freedom comes, though, not from just wanting doing whatever you want. We can see a number of things. Let's just focus in a little bit here. We can see a number of things from this in verse 17. First of all, there are two sets of desires within us. There is a desire to obey and please the Lord, and there is a desire of the flesh which are corrupted and rebellious. And these two desires are opposed to one another. In fact, James talks about those passions that are at war within us. First Peter 2 talks about the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. So there is a battle of sorts going on inside of us. And our freedom is all wrapped up in that battle. And our will, the freedom of our will, is ultimately constrained by these two forces. He says there, they are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's the key. The freedom we've been given is constrained both by the spirit and by the flesh. The question is not the ability to do whatever we want. The question is, which one will be our master? That's the choice you and I have. We have been called to a freedom constrained by the Holy Spirit. We are called not to be bound to the flesh, but to the Spirit. We are called not to be enslaved to the flesh, but enslave ourselves to the Spirit. We are called not to submit to the old master, but to the new one. The old master leads us into slavery, poverty, conflict and dispute. The old master leads us into arguments, pain, sadness and broken relationships. The old master seeks to alienate us from friends and families and brothers and sisters in Christ. The new master is a kind master. He's a gentle master. He's a master who helps and guides us. He is a master who loves us. He is a master who is concerned about our situation and our circumstances, not only now, but even in the future. See, God's work in us, the work of the Spirit of God in us, is to lead us in accordance with God's own desires. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, His desires are in us. Because these desires are in us, there's a natural inclination to do good, to obey the Lord. And this is why when you often, when you find somebody who's a new believer, often there's this big, sharp difference in their lives instantly made. It's because their old life was all of the flesh. That's all the desires they have. But now they have new desires. And they start to walk in those desires and the evidence is clear quickly. These desires that the Lord puts in us are toward the Lord. They exalt the Lord. They make much of the Lord. They desire to see Him glorified. They desire to worship Him. These desires are desires for unity and friendship and sharing and serving one another. These desires are desires to love and it is with joy that as we embrace the desires of the Spirit and live by those, we get to live out His plan for us. Now it may be that you're sitting there and this sounds all very foreign and strange. It may be that you don't recognise conflicting desires in you. If so, 
Let me suggest that maybe that's because you only have one set of desires. That the only desires that are at work in you are the desires of the flesh. And if that's the case, I urge you this morning to take time to bring your heart before the Lord. To tell him, recognize to him that those are the only desires you have. And you need a new heart. You need Christ in you to change you. Seek his forgiveness and he will do just that. It may also be that you're a believer, but you've followed the desires of your flesh so long that these desires have become overwhelming. You've subjected yourself again to the slavery to the flesh. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God has not gone away. You can change. You can grow in your ability to walk with the Spirit. The next question really is, how do I identify whether I'm walking with the flesh or walking with the Spirit? How do I, how is that made clear? And that's our next point. So we've seen in our three qualifications of our call to freedom that the flesh continues, that qualifies our call of freedom. The Spirit constrains, that qualifies our call to freedom. And the heart confirms. The desires that we follow are exposed. And that's what he's really getting at when he comes to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Notice that word, evident. That's the key here. The works of the flesh are evident. It's clear. It's plain. There is no question about it. Everybody can see it. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. These are the works of the flesh. These are evident. We can see these. We can hear them. We can recognize them in ourselves and we can recognize them in one another. Now, I'm not going to look at every single one of these, but broadly speaking, there are really, it looks like to me, four different categories of sins that are listed here. Firstly, there's pleasure-based sins. So these are sensual sins, sins of the body, which are good desires that are just where the law has been removed. Sexual immorality, impurity and sensuality. The senses. The pleasure of the senses override and those senses being corrupted by the, you know, in the flesh are the ones we're following. The second set is false worship. And this is really, well, we'll talk about it in a minute, but false worship includes idolatry and sorcery. Now, the idea of sorcery here comes from the Greek word pharmakeia, which you probably recognize sounds like pharmacy, which is where we get the word from. And it really has the idea of the use of drugs. The idea here is that in, in these times, the use of drugs or the use of herbal remedies as it was in those days, uh, not quite in the same way we use that phrase today, but the use of drugs in those days to, you know, was part of worship, part of idolatrous worship. And so those two things go together under false worship. And then there's the interpersonal sins, the enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions and envy. And then there's the escape sins, drunkenness 
and orgies. And orgies really means excessive feasting. These are the times where, you know, you, you want to get out of your situation and so you flee to the bottle or you indulge in too much chocolate perhaps. But all of these are sourced in the desires of the flesh. So the, the, the pleasures, the fleshly desires are corrupted good desires. The false worship is sourced in fleshly pleasures. What can I get from this idol? We worship idols for an end. Often those idols are built in our own image. And the interpersonal sins is fleshly since what we're doing is we're exalting my desires over the desires of others or even over the desires of a collective group, even over the body of Christ. And it goes something like this. We begin with a desire, a want, and it becomes an envy. We think about it, meditate on it, let it drive our thinking, and we ask for it. We manipulate to get it. Then we demand it. Then we require it and we begin to fight for it. And ultimately, we resort to murder and hatred. Do any of these look like you? Do some of these sound familiar? Are you stuck in sexual immorality or sensuality? Have you swapped out the worship of the one true God for an idol made in your own image? Have you got into personal conflict in your life? Are you escaping your problems with alcohol or food? If so, the reasoning from this piece of text here is that you are walking in the flesh. You are yielding to its control again. And you are quenching the desires of the spirit. Fortunately, these are not the only desires in us. But you can see, and this is Paul's point, as he goes through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Against these there's no law. But the point Paul's getting at here is that the, the path you choose, the master you select, is evident, is clear. You will know it. You will not necessarily be able to recognize which you're following in its own right, but as you see what the manifestations of it are, you can trace it back to whether it's a desire of the flesh or you're following the desires of the spirit. And Paul's point here is to point out that the desires you follow will make themselves known to you and to those around you. In fact, if you go down to chapter 6, verse 1, he goes on, he says, if anyone's caught in a transgression... So he's saying these are evident, so when you see one another in these, you are to call it out. We are to be called to account by one another. So the second qualification of our call to freedom is that the spirit, sorry, the first one is the flesh continues, desires are corrupted. The second one is the spirit constrains, desires are conflicted. The third one is the heart confirms and the desires are exposed. We need to recognise, don't we, that those present tense, continuous, those who are continuing in such things, this is at the end of verse 21 there, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is characterised by these things, if you are continually following the desires of the flesh, if the desires of the flesh dominate your life, and you become known 
for a particular sin, such of those in this list, then you're following in the desires of the flesh. It's time to recognize those desires for what they are. It's time to bring our hearts before the Lord and to confess one very important truth. We need Christ. Not just for salvation. We need him for that. But we need him in us to change us. Without those desires in us, there is no hope. Without those desires, we are controlled by the flesh. Because there are no other desires. Without the spirit in us, there's only the flesh. We become slaves to its desires. So without the indwelling spirit, we cannot overcome the flesh. Without the spirit, we are slaves to the flesh. Without the spirit, we are imprisoned by the desires of the flesh. But we are called to a spirit-constrained freedom. A freedom which we submit ourselves to the one master who looks out for our good. Which master are you choosing? What would your friends say you're choosing? Your family, those closest to you. Paul closes... He says there, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In verse 25, there should be an and or a but there. But if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ have put to death the flesh by choice. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Close with me in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you are so merciful, that you would place in us through your spirit, because of faith, your own very desires, so that we can have great confidence that the word of God and the spirit of God work together to do what you want us to do, so that we can obey your word and your spirit works with us for that end. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you make this possible Father, we pray that we would be those who walk in love because that's the first fruit of the Spirit. May we love one another, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.